When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. How are you? I was just at the dentist this morning, so obviously I'm full of joy. (laughs) I'm at my happiest right now. So uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm very good. Yourself? Everything went well? Everything went fabulously. Um, That's great. Yes. Um, How are I'm you doing, doing pretty good. Definitely now thinking more about the dentist uh, now that you've brought it up because I haven't been for a while, oh. mostly due to the pandemic. And I'm like, I do need to go, but I don't know when that's going to happen. And also need to find a new dentist because yeah. I'm in a whole new state now. There's a piece of advice that I know Patty Smith loves to give. And every time she gives it, several people like inform me. <laughs> I think Patty Smith has said many times, like, if you're a creative person, the best thing you can do is take care of your teeth. The last thing a freelance creative person needs is an unexpected dental bill. Ugh, um, it's true. It doesn't, now, taking care of your teeth doesn't mean that you won't have bills. I do take care of my teeth. I still <laughs> have a lot of bills, but it doesn't hurt. So this is an episode about teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Would be great. So the creative advice that I wanted to talk about today actually comes from one of my great idols, uh, Bong Joon-ho, from his Best Director acceptance speech at the 2020 Oscars. Let's have a little listen. Thank you so much. When I was young and studying cinema, there was a saying that I carved deep into my heart, which is the most personal is the most creative. That quote was from uh, our great Martin Scorsese, so... (laughs) As two people, you and I, June, who've worked mostly in nonfiction and journalistic spaces, I feel like our relationship with separating or merging personal ideas or feelings in our work is both more and less complicated. How do you consider your personal feelings with regards to the topics you do or don't cover? Well, so... I can definitely do work for hire. Mm-hmm. That's our job, right? I don't want to act like, no, I need to be completely, <laughs> you know, captivated by the muse. Right. No, you know, if your job is to write, you can write. But the things I'm proudest of and the things I'm most excited about tend to be things that I have some connection with. And that can mm-hmm. be a personal connection, you know, like something like, lesbian culture or access to dental care. It is the dental (laughs) episode. Or it can be something I find fascinating, like, I don't know, walruses or pens or things that I really want people to wake up about. So Mm -hmm. I do feel more enthusiasm, more motivation when I'm working on something like that. So yeah, that that makes sense to me. What about Mm -hmm. you? Well, I really I want to backtrack really briefly because all ah. of the things that you mentioned as interests pretty much scanned to me except for walruses, which felt like it came kind of out of left field. Is that an actual <laughs> interest of yours or just an example? Well, actually, that's that's maybe an example of what 
how you can become very interested in something. <gasps> so I wrote a piece once for Bloomberg that I pitched to them as something quite small. It was going to be about um, walrus ivory materials or oh, wow. souvenirs that were available in the museum in Anchorage. And my editor there was just really ambitious. I'm like, no, you should you should write about going to see walruses. Wow. And so I, I took this amazing trip where I did indeed go on a walrus safari and then... Holy cow! Something that was actually even more exciting and special that was only a small piece of the uh, of the piece was that I also went out to a village because walrus ivory is still controlled not as strictly as elephant ivory because the animals are in pretty different circumstances, but you can only purchase walrus ivory things that have been carved by an Alaska native. And so I went to mm -hmm. a village where a guy was a craftsman who was, you know, actually made something for me on the spot. Wow. And that was amazing. Uh, so it was a great trip. And so even though when I went into it, not really caring that much about walruses, I came out of it slightly obsessed and I could still, <laughs> I could still really bore, bore, bore at a dinner party about walruses if I was given the opportunity. That's amazing. I can't wait to have a dinner party specifically so that <laughs> I can hear what you have to say about walruses because now I'm very interested. Um, I feel like that's kind of the best case scenario though because I, I agree generally about how the field of journalism works where it's like you are pretty much guaranteed to not have the same level of investment in every topic that you're yeah. supposed to cover. Not necessarily because you're like, I don't care about what I'm writing, but because you'll get assigned stuff and kind of it's it's your job to do it. Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. just a hobby or something that you can pursue at your leisure most of the time. Yeah. That said, I think there's also sort of a flip side to it where I I'm curious if you've ever said no to a project because you felt too close to it or it was like too personal to talk about. Do you think there's such a thing as being too close to a topic? I do. I I'm not actually sure that I've declined projects because they felt too near and dear. Mm -hmm. But I am conscious of not having tried to become attached to certain projects yeah. for that reason. And even if it's something you don't spell out for yourself, on some level, you know that you have to be willing to expose things. If you go into a story, you can't hold back. And if you have a sense that you're going to be tempted to pull punches, if if you know, if you get to that stage, you don't want to put yourself in that position. Yeah. So I think a lot of us just kind of on some intuitive level know that we shouldn't, you know, mm -hmm. there are just as you shouldn't write about something that you're personally invested in, like literal investment, the mm -hmm. ethics of writing, <laughs> the ethics of writing about your friends are pretty clear. You should not do that. But writing about subjects you have feelings about is a more gray area. And I, I think you have to go with your gut in those situations. Yeah, I totally agree. Generally speaking, I feel like I'm just sometimes wary of it, of the idea of being too close to something just because having a point of view is important. Like there's no yeah. way when you write about a topic that you're going to be completely removed from it. But yeah. at the same time, if you as the journalist aren't specifically the subject, you don't want to put too much of yourself in that story at the risk of kind of diluting what you're ultimately writing about or making yourself too available to the public, as it were, because your life is private. Like, my yeah. life is my life. That's not what I'm trying to put out there. Do you feel at all the same way? Yeah, I'm very conscious, especially the, the last part. You know, mm -hmm. I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one of the many reasons I love being one of the hosts of Working. But I don't necessarily like being talked about. So mm -hmm. 
I am very conscious of putting some things off limits. So I'm not even tempted to overshare on those subjects. Yeah. Does your idea of personal boundaries um, change at all if the project you're working on is fiction as opposed to nonfiction, as we've just been talking about? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't Mm -hmm. written much fiction or worked on feature projects. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure that I would not be capable of being inventive enough to maintain that separation, Mm -hmm. even if I was, you know, working in a fictional realm. Like, I'm the kind of person whose subconscious is always revealing itself. Like, I'll, (laughs) I'll get into an elevator with a guy who needs a shave and I'll start you know, humming, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And <laughs> That's so I, I don't threatening. mean to, and I don't want to, but like, I know that about myself. So I, I'm just pretty sure I'd end up oversharing yeah, whatever my fair. intentions were. It's definitely dangerous. I feel like it can sort of backfire, I think, sort of as you're talking about, in a way that you don't intend for it to. I'm thinking here specifically about like all the gossip that kind of flared up around the movie Marriage Story and people wondering about how much of it was directly based on the director Noah Baumbach's relationship with his previous wife, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and even stuff about like Bad Art Friend, for instance, where it's like, where do you draw the line? Like, how much do you want your personal life to be what people talk about when they see your movie or read your book or something like that. Exactly. I I would not want people to be trying to figure out where I was yeah. in my story and what was true. But I also, yeah, I, all of the examples you quoted, I'll add, um, you know, cat person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really torn on that because I am the only person in the world who was willing to, you know, go out there and argue that Beyonce's Lemonade wasn't necessarily autobiographical. Mm-hmm. But who also, yeah, I read a book or a story and if a character drinks a lot, I start wondering, hmm, is the author having an alcohol (laughs) problem? You know, like, to be clear, I don't think that's really fair or something I should do, but it is what I do. And so in a way, it's a little glib to say, but I don't think there's such a thing as coincidence. I wonder Mm -hmm. if there really even is such a thing as fiction. Is it really just the author's subconscious trying to figure things out or to, you know, hum the Sweeney Todd theme. Uh, So I don't know. But to answer your question directly, I don't think I'd have the guts to even try and fictionalize myself. And I'm also not sure that I'm inventive enough to create a whole (laughs) new existence. It's tough to do. Like, we just had that episode with Isaac's interview with Fanula Murphy, who made a whole new language. And I was like, that seems impossible to me. Right, right. But I think that about fiction generally. I remember Mm -hmm. talking to Roman Alam, you know, a previous host who, you know, one of his amazing novels had just come out. And I knew in my questions, I was saying, but is it you? Where are you? And and he's just like, it's not, it's not me. And in some ways, it's not something I'm even capable of conceiving of, that fiction is just pure invention. I thought about that a lot in that one Succession episode, too, where Stephen Root's character is talking to the Willa who just wrote a play, and he's like, so you just make up stuff? And it's like, yes, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> All right, we'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Working Overtime right after this. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. 
I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, working listeners. In this episode, we're talking about one of my favorite quotes from the director, Bong Joon-ho. So we're wondering, do you have a favorite quote from one of your favorite creators? Share it with us by sending an email to working at slate.com or better yet, give us a call and leave us a message at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. We would love to hear from you. All right, now back to the show. To circle back to Bong Joon-ho, or I guess Martin Scorsese's creative advice, <laughs> I completely understand the quote in that, as we sort of discussed, I think, at the top of the episode, you're going to be the most fired up about projects that are about the things that you actually care about. I said about so many times, but you get what I mean. Um, <laughs> and if something isn't significant to you, why bother tackling it at all, right? Yeah, I agree with that. But I'm also aware that so far in this episode, We've been talking about this from the creator's point of view and Mm -hmm. what we're comfortable revealing. And I think it's worth just taking a moment and thinking about how it is for people experiencing the art that comes out of these uh, projects. So, for example, I think a lot about the work of Pedro Almodovar. He's a filmmaker whose work has probably been the most important in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, his his career has, has kind of coincided with significant moments in my life. It, That's so he's cool. Just, you know, he's been my filmmaker for decades. Oh. Um, 
And, you know, he's made about 22 feature films. And I would say that about 18 of them have been pretty much the same movie, about the same <laughs> thing. And not only that, but he'll even like replay scenes from one movie in another and try them out with different outcomes, different actors, different, you know, he, like that's his thing and that's fine. I think these are things from his life, mm-hmm. parts of his life, questions that he's trying to figure out. And I find that fascinating. These are, you know, the movies I keep returning to. These are the movies that have kind of given me the most or have made me feel things most intensely. Mm-hmm. And they work, I think, because it's so personal to him. And I mentioned earlier that that was true for about 18 of his 22 movies. Well, the other four, they're kind of terrible. Or that's unfair. <laughs> they're not terrible. They're not terrible, um, but they're just not as interesting. You know, like his most recent movie, Parallel Mothers, mm-hmm. some good performances, one great one. But it's kind of empty and in parts it's just kind of dumb. And <laughs> I think that's because it's an issue movie. It's not a feelings movie. Mm. And I think he cared very much about the issue, but I think, yeah, and obviously I'm projecting onto a great filmmaker's oeuvre. So, you know, this is just my insight and who am I? But I don't... So so I guess what I'm saying is, I while I don't want to be oversharing or for people to be wondering, ooh, what's she accidentally <laughs> revealing there? I'm very happy. I'm overjoyed, in fact, when great artists are willing to do that. Yeah. People like Almodovar and Bong Joon-ho. So what is your favorite Almodovar? Oh, my goodness. Or do you have like a top three or something? The reason I'm hesitating is that some years ago, actually, I think probably about 10 years ago now, I wrote a sort of a completist, obviously no longer complete, Mm -hmm. where I list, you know, I wrote about all these movies. I put them in order. And I hate to contradict myself and just like name another movie (laughs) if it's not the one I officially picked. But I love those like Balbert, Talk to Her even, you know, those Mm -hmm. movies that are just very clearly about... Almodovar going through life stages and just yeah. kind of figuring things out about his family or his past or about Spain, um, but in a personal way, not when it's just like, we really need to deal with this law that's just been passed. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> don't make or don't make a movie about the economy. That's not, you know, I don't want to be that person who's like, stay in your lane, bro, but stay in your lane, bro. Totally understandable. And I have one last question, which is, do you think I'm at all misinterpreting the quote that we're talking about? Is there a different meaning behind it that I'm just not seeing? I don't know. I don't know. It's a Cohen. Mm. I suspect that this will be a question that you'll think about a lot over the years to come. And and now you've got me thinking about it, too. So this will be something for us to uh, ponder for many years. And it almost doesn't matter if we're misinterpreting. We're, we're interpreting, right? That's true. It will reveal itself to us in the shape that we need it to be over time. That's right. <laughs> when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> All right, that's all the time that we have for this episode. If you like the show, or even if you don't, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions about the creative process that you'd like to ask us, or if you have a piece of creative advice, whether it's your own or from a mentor that you think that we should discuss on the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. 
you'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of How To Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. Big thanks to our producers this episode, Cameron Drews and Kevin Bendis. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. 